1: Welcome to Breaking Beauty, the podcast all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. We're your hosts, Jill Dunn and Carlene Higgins. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Breaking Beauty podcast. Hey, Jill. Welcome, pod fam. Hey, Carlene. I'm sure you know by now that we're two beauty editors turned beauty podcasters. And Jill, today's episode is all about the piping hot Met Gala that happened on Monday night. We're going to give you our hot takes on the red carpet beauty looks, and we have a special guest joining us a little bit later in the show who's going to give us a bit more of a detailed background on why the Met Gala is really like the new Oscars of the fashion world. She's the author of the brand new book, Anna, the Biography, about Anna Wintour
2: herself. It's Amy O'Dell. Yes, that's right. And the book was just released yesterday. Amy is a Westchester, New York-based journalist with more than 15 years' experience covering fashion and culture from her early days as a freelance party reporter for New York Magazine, where she ultimately became the founding blogger of The Cut, which you and I always reference and read. And uh, she also worked at BuzzFeed for some time, cosmopolitan.com. And now she's a freelancer who contributes to New York Magazine, Time. And she has her own Substack newsletter. I mean, she's doing the most. And I was lucky enough, Carlene, to get an advanced reading copy of Anna the Biography. And let me tell you, I absolutely tore through it in a weekend. It's just so juicy. And Amy has this writing style that's like she writes, I saw someone describe it as she writes with like at quite a clip like it's like mm. a page turner. You're you're in. Mm-hmm. It's not slow. I felt like it's a great book for the TikTok age because I was in it and turning those pages. So you're going to get a sneak peek into that Anna Wintour book
1: today. But first, can we talk about the Met Gala? I mean, we need to, I think we need to like do our own critique of some of these beauty looks Let's start with a the theme. The theme was in America, an anthology of fashion. It was a white tie affair with an emphasis on gilded glamour.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, that is part of the fun of the Met when you compare it to something like the Oscars or the Grammys. We've had quite a lot of red carpets in the last little mm-hmm. bit, but this one, it has that theme, right? So it kind of ties it all together. Big dress up yeah. party and certainly open to interpretation you know, it is that maximum creativity that they are inviting because it's that partnership with designers and the A-listers that they invite. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was part two
1: of last year's theme, a lexicon of fashion that was just in September. And I didn't really know what white tie meant, to be honest. I had to look it up. Apparently, this dress code is required for only the most formal
2: and historic of occasions. So it's
1: supposed to be like even higher than a black tie event. Oh,
2: interesting. You know, I was definitely getting a lot of Bridgerton looks being served meets the Gilded Age on HBO. Definitely some nouveau reach. I th- I think the Gilded Age was definitely a nouveau reach era because it was all these big families, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, just with a ton of mm-hmm. money and trying to get New York the respect it deserved mm-hmm. in Paris, in London. And I I'm kind of fascinated with this age. I'm very nerdy about this actually. And so it is it is just a really fun theme for them to be taking on. Yeah.
1: Like I think it's 1870 to 1890 is known as this gilded age, Mm -hmm. this Victorian era. So let's get into some of the looks, Jill. I mean, I think the most highly anticipated by far was Kim Kardashian just because she completely shut it down in past years with like her wet look. You know, she can't sit down in the dress. So I think we all have seen by now we know that she did an homage to Marilyn Monroe and wore the original dress. From the archives, which was worth like millions of dollars. And I just wondered what your take was.
2: Just so people know, it's not the dress where she's standing over the air vent with the white dress and it's popping up. It's the sparkly sequin sheath number that she wore to serenade President Kennedy. Right. So it was a little bit more scandalous, yes. if you will. I thought she looked phenomenal. She looked like a movie star. She also, of course, dyed her hair platinum. So it really was just head to toe so well thought out. And I think she herself, she's not been taken seriously for so long in the fashion world that she just never leaves it to chance. Every detail is so hyper, just hyper thought out, thought through. Apparently she lost like some weight to fit into this dress, and you know it's stunning she's she's absolutely gorgeous, and let's not forget it's only the second time that she's been on the red carpet with Pete Davidson, so I thought it was a hot couple look mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. interesting i I didn't love this look I'm gonna be honest um okay. I liked the sentiment I thought you know if you're looking mm-hmm. back and you're you know trying to celebrate the history of fashion in America. It was nice of her to pay a tribute to somebody else versus herself. She herself is so iconic. But Mm -hmm. I thought that I thought, to be honest, that her makeup look like her beauty look fell a little bit flat. You know, we've seen the platinum on her before, so it wasn't entirely surprising. There wasn't that much to the makeup aside from the contour. and. I thought it was interesting, though, like I read a lot of people's critiques about whether this look worked or not. And I mean, that's what you do with Kim Kardashian when you have 300 million followers and that's what she expects and she knows it and she owns it. But I did clock on Instagram, Susie Menkes, her comment, and I was like, whoa, that's a bit harsh. She said, Kim Kardashian becomes Marilyn Monroe for the Met Gala in New York. By wearing the original dress, which was sold at auction at over $1 million in 1999, a fine example of how you can take a dress to a woman, but it can't change her basic character. Ouch. Grumpy old lady comment. Sorry. Right? I know. That's the thing. And so in the comments, it was like a lot of people were like, unfollow, unfollow. And I just thought it was interesting to your point. It's like the idea of fashion criticism. It's just like, guys, it's a new era now. Like you don't do that. But having said that, what I would add to this conversation is like, I kind of agree with her sentiment. Marilyn wore it better, frankly, and Kim is an icon in herself. So she doesn't really need to do that. But what I didn't enjoy about this look was what you just said earlier is the fact that she lost 16 pounds in two weeks to wear this dress. And that to me is also not of this era. Do you know what I mean? It's like, she has so many followers and she is such a leader in this space. And there's so many young people who look up to her. To me, that just felt a little bit out of date and not really responsible. And I was like, you know, it doesn't even look that amazing to me. Like, I just thought it was a bit flat. And so I I didn't enjoy that moment maybe as much as I thought I was going to.
2: I think that's just par for the course for them, frankly, and riffing off of what Katie Starino always says, comparing women, comparing Marilyn Monroe to Kim Kardashian is also not of this era. It's not about, she always says, it's not about who wore it better. It's about that they both can wear it. Well, they can, but I mean, she couldn't even, she couldn't even walk up the stairs. Do you know what
1: I mean? I just, to me, that is like,
2: that's not where we're at. But she couldn't in that Tara Mugler dress either. I
1: know, I know, and we're going to talk about that in today's episode as well.
2: Anyway, you know, I'm sure she's never not she's never not controversial, and maybe that's the point. She knows she can really do no right by some people and do no wrong by others, and that's just the nature of her. And I think it was interesting for me was the first time ever all the sisters were invited, Chloe. Mm. First time ever, and that's a huge thing, and Courtney Anna Winter never gave them a pass to come, mm-hmm. and finally they came, and they all kind of dressed in the theme where they were all like in ode to Camelot, so an American icons like Chris Jenner was dressed as Jackie O basically, mm-hmm. and I just found that really refreshing that finally they were all able to go mm-hmm. because there is nobody more influential yeah, so definitely different opinions on Kim as always but yeah. Thank God she's there. That's what I have to say. You can always count on there's going to be something to talk about with Kim. Um,
1: Who Mm -hmm. else? Who else?
2: Who should we talk about next? Let's see. I was really excited for the Euphoria girlies. Mm -hmm. A lot of them hadn't been before. Really feeling the missing presence of Zendaya. Mm -hmm. I felt we did not get that moment. I mean, she just turns it out every single time she hits a red carpet. So she wasn't there because she was working I personally did not see Alexa Demi. I was looking for images of her. She is an iconic character on Euphoria. She wasn't there. Sydney Sweeney was there. It was her first Matt Gala, and she plays Cassie on Euphoria. And I just thought it was a bit of a miss. It was quite safe and I expected more from her. She is this bombshell. But I think my favorite look of the night was actually Emma Chamberlain.
1: Mm, interesting
2: which is the young YouTuber, Mm -hmm. she had this amazing, uh, she went platinum blonde as well with this really sharp bob. She had the makeup artist Kelsey Denehan Fisher do her makeup. Mm -hmm. And it was this soft romantic look with these pops of gold. There was actually 24 karat gold leaf on her lids. Mm -hmm. And it was all bare minerals products that were used. And she topped it off with a tiara and she was wearing Louis Vuitton and she was wearing Cartier. And she's just so young and fresh and cool. And she was doing the red carpet interviews for Vogue yeah. on the live stream. So she just is so the it girl of the moment. And everybody that talked to her, that's Gen Z. They all love her. And they're like so excited to see her. And I thought she just turned it out. And then actually one of my other favorite looks was from a Euphoria girly Maude Apatow. And she randomly, I didn't know this before I put it together, but also that makeup was done by the same makeup artist by Kelsey Dinen and Fisher. Yeah. And Maude was kind of this like vintage vision. She had like pin curls and this really, really dark berry lip, very old Hollywood glamour pin curls, like I said. And it was her first her first debut at Mac Gala as well. So I think she, she looked really nervous, which was really cute. But I think she looked beautiful in yeah. all of her photos and everything. And she used Armani Beauty products on her.
1: I thought she looked beautiful, but maybe a little, she looked older than she is, I thought little bit. And I think that happens Mm -hmm. sometimes when you have this vintage theme and it and it goes very literal. And I think that's one of the things that I learned when I was like kind of coming up and doing fashion shoots and beauty shoots is like Mm -hmm. you will get inspiration from the past. But I like it when there's a modern twist to it. Like, for example, you know, Kaya Gerber, she had these like really long ethereal waves that were, you know, looked yes. old timey, but then it was parted in the center and she had barrettes on each side that were really bejeweled. And like, mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a nod to Y2K. So it's like, it looked her shirt. Sure. So I think those two people who are about the same age, like I could really see
2: the difference in that. Yeah. But let me just say on the heels of that, and I totally get what you're saying. And Olivia Rodrigo also had those Y2K barrettes and butterfly clips actually, and her hair looked really long and gorgeous. I think it's just the first one. It was the first one for Maude Apatow and the first one for Sydney Sweeney. And they did just go a little bit safe. Whereas Kaya Gerber, she's a model. She's been there. She can like turn it out a bit more. Anyway, I think that that's kind of the difference. Yeah.
1: And I mean, one thing I will say is I think the theme gilded glamour really lent itself to to beauty having its moment on the red carpet as opposed to just the fashion And so I think that's why there was no surprise that like euphoria, the idea of the crystals um, on the face was so popular. That was definitely probably the biggest trend, if you will, of the evening. We saw it on uh, Jodie Turner-Smith and Alicia Keys, Mm -hmm. just like the tiny little rhinestones. And of course, Mm -hmm. Alicia Keys actually chose that moment to debut her return to makeup. So he's soul care. It just, I guess that was the debut of the makeup that is now coming out. Naomi Campbell had like the really large crystals on her face, but I kind of felt like that too. We've like seen a lot of that on the Burberry runway. I didn't think that was a really Mm -hmm. original, but I really liked Nicki Minaj's take on the look because It was almost like dotted from all over her face and it went all the way down her collete. Her boobs were like busting out all over. It went all the way down her arms to her nails. But I loved it because that, again, is an example of like Nikki did the red carpet and that theme her way. Do you know what I mean? It was like it had this nod to the vintage, but it was totally Nikki. She had this black leather baseball cap. I thought that was Mm -hmm. so cool. And then the most unique take that I really felt on this uh, euphoria crystal idea was Lucy Boynton. Uh, No surprise. She always turns it out thanks to her makeup artist. Mm -hmm. Um, But she had these rhinestone crystallized lashes. Like that's what it looked like. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it was probably not literally on the lashes, but she had this like twiggy kind of a look where the lashes are really... Yeah, she's got those lashes. Yeah. It's like really long down below, like twiggy, but they were like, rhinestone crystals and they just glimmered. And I literally, it was like, that's a look I've never seen that before in my life. And so just honestly, like slay. I had to give a little
2: bow down to that. What I thought was also really interesting is that we saw a lot of great moments from women who were not euphoria girlies, some women who were been in the business forever, Christine Baranski. It was her first Met Gala ever. She just turned 70. She's like, I've never been busier. Of course, she's one of the stars of The Gilded Age on HBO. Mm -hmm. And um, also Glenn Close wore this Valentino pink um, head to toe look. And she had this great slicked back hair moment and kind of like dramatic makeup. And I just love seeing that too in the mix, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. I didn't see their looks, but yeah, I love I
1: love that.
2: Okay. So any other trends that you feel like we need to share with our listeners, Carleen, or that you want to touch on? Yes, absolutely. I love
1: a good hair transformation on the red carpet. And I thought, you know, Sophie Turner, she looks so Mm -hmm. incredible. I don't know how pregnant she is, but she's quite pregnant. And she has like this deep, flamey, red kind of burgundy hair that she had on the red carpet. It was like mermaid waves, really long. And what I really loved is that her eyeshadow matched her hair color. It was like this deep kind of Mm -hmm. burgundy look. And it was such a modern take on the smoky eye. You know, the smoky eye is kind of like done in terms of like the three tones and you blend them together. But it was just like this burgundy that kind of like faded out. And then it was paired with this bright red like flaming red lip, like not a deep red, but like a really bright, almost orangey red. And the color combination was just so unique and incredible. I love a moment like that that surprises me. So I just thought she completely slayed. And I know that feeling when you're pregnant, you're like, a lot of times you just want to be like ethereal and pretty, but she actually looked like pregnant and dangerous. Like she truly slayed. I love that. And then lastly, I have to close it out. I am a Bridgerton stan. I'm obsessed. I watch it with my kid. I have one episode to go and then we're done season two. So seeing Nicola Cullen, the Irish actress who plays Penelope Mm -hmm. slash Lady Whistledown on Bridgerton, she made her Met Gala debut and she had this bright blonde Hair. You know, we're used to seeing her as Penelope in that like yeah. orangey red ginger hair. And so she just looked, it looked so different. She had her makeup done by the team at Pat McGrath Labs. And of course, they used the Bridgerton collection from Pat McGrath. She's the face of it, she's the muse. So it was really beautiful. It was like this bright pink blush. We know blush is having a moment right now, the matching pink eyes with a glossy pink lip. So it was all this monochromatic pink look that matched her like a bright pink and black gown. She looked incredible. And I just love that she's having this moment right now as the muse and she's becoming like this beauty, like the new
2: face of beauty. And I just love to see it. Okay. So before we get into our chat with Amy O'Dell, any thoughts on Anna Wintour's look?
1: Well, I mean, it was very Anna Wintour. I mean, she's kind of, I I Mm -hmm. feel like she's kind of predictable. It's usually Chanel or Oscar de la Renta. It was kind of beige. It was, there were some feathers. It was, you know, she was kind of the host. She was like, let other people shine. I thought it was age appropriate for, I I mean, if I can say that, Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to be age appropriate. You know, she could have had her boobs hanging out. It was very Anna though, you know, like, I don't know. I I wouldn't have thought to comment on her look. Why? Do you have something to say about it?
2: (laughs) Well, she didn't wear her sunglasses on the red carpet and she wore a tiara. Okay. Queen of the night. Okay. So I think I think she's well aware that the topic at everybody's table is going to be this book. Right. Right. And uh, I think she she's definitely keenly aware of every single thing that's going on around her. So I I think she kind of dressed for that occasion as well. A little a little nod to that, okay. being the Queen of the Night. Well, she kind of is the
1: queen of the night, if you think about it. I mean, at the end of the day, as glamorous as this whole event is, at the end of the day, it's a charity event. You know, it raises money for the Mm -hmm. Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Anna has been hugely successful in doing that. So with that, let's get into our chat with Amy O'Dell. She's going to give us some unique insights into the mind of Anna Wintour, the woman behind the glasses and the bob. She's going to give us some sneak peeks into the behind the scenes of how the Met Gala operates, which I understand is kind of like
2: militaristic. We'll also hear Amy's take on where Vogue is going next, because let's face it, it's not the Gilded Era anymore. And that question of relevance, you know, it's valid right now. So we're going to get into all of that and more. Without further ado, let's welcome Amy O'Dell. pausing for a moment in partnership with The Way. Hey, friends, as I record this, I'm packing for my beach holiday. I'm heading to St. Simon's Island in Georgia to visit a college friend. So excited. My beauty bag is packed. I'm staring at it in my suitcase right now. It's stuffed with a lot of SPF, but I'm only bringing one single hair product. And that product is the best-selling leave-in conditioner from Way. So whenever my hair hits balmy weather, it tends to swell up. And if I go swimming in salt water, my hair gets really dry. So this leave-in conditioner really is a multitasking wonder because it does it all. It helps to hydrate, detangle, fight, frizz, and it even acts as a heat protectant. Plus, it's super easy to apply. It's in a non-aerosol pump. So I just apply several spritzes on my damp hair. I use a wide tooth comb, work it through the lengths of my hair, and it just really gives my hair so much shine. And I just feel like it's a total game changer to have on vacation. It's got amino acids in the formula. Those are great to prevent breakage. It also has panthenol and that helps with shine and softness. And it doesn't weigh my hair down or feel greasy at all. Plus, I love the smell. It's scented with North Bondi, a floral fragrance with notes of violet and white musk. It's just so delicious. So very exciting news. We have a very special offer just for Breaking Beauty listeners discover a new way of life with the leaving conditioner from way go to the way.com that's spelled dot com, and use code beauty to get 15% off your entire purchase that's 15% off your entire order at the way.com spelled t h e o u a i.com and use our code beauty we'll link to that in our show notes and on our website now back to the show how do
0: i ask my boss for a raise I'm so jealous of my coworker's promotion. I just don't know what to do. Is there a good way to brag about my accomplishments? Careers are complicated and there are so many hush hush topics we're told we can't talk about. That's why you have the Career Contessa podcast. I'm your host, Laura McGoodwin, and each week I'm joined by experts to help you overcome your workplace woes with actionable advice that you can use today. Subscribe to the Career Contessa podcast and make progress in your career every Tuesday.
1: Amy, welcome to Breaking Beauty Podcast. We're big fans of your Substack newsletter, Back Row. I love the name, by the way. So relatable for me. I love the real talk of your newsletter. And I think that just begs the question with Anna, the biography, you know, how much real talk is in it. So tell us what readers can expect.
0: Anna, the biography is a book that I worked on for about three years. It contains interviews with more than 250 people. And it is a book about an extraordinary business person in a position of power that is really kind of unmatched. And she is someone who has extraordinary longevity Jeff Bezos, from the time he started Amazon to the time he stepped down from the position of CEO, that was 27 years. Anna Wintour has been the editor-in-chief of Vogue since 1988. So this summer, it will be 34 years. That longevity is incredible. And this book aims to explain who this woman is behind the bob, behind the sunglasses, behind the image of her that many people have from Meryl Streep's depiction of her in The Devil Wears Prada.
2: Allegedly. Allegedly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, allegedly.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I
1: think that people will want to know, you know, maybe you could clarify whether the book is authorized, unauthorized. But again, just getting back to what you're known for with your newsletter, which is really the real talk, that must be hard to balance that when you're doing a biography like with somebody like Anna Wintour who as you just said is incredibly powerful and um so I'm curious how you kind of balanced all of that.
0: Yeah, so after I had worked on the book for about a year and a half I heard from a representative for Anna at Condé Nast and I spoke to her about the book and how I believed that the book should be about power, about a woman in a position of power uh, and explain how Anna got that power and how she's held onto it. Because as I said, it's very unusual in the business world to be able to do that, yet she has. And after that conversation, Anna decided to send me a list of people that she suggested I interview who she considered to be close to her. The list included people ranging from Tom Ford to Serena Williams to people who worked for her at Vogue for a long time, like Hamish Bowles. I spoke to just about all of those people. And I also did my own reporting. Tons of... The vast majority of the reporting was not from that list. It was not coming from Anna Wintour herself. It is my own reporting and there are stories in there that I felt were important to include that that are, as you say, you know, real talk. And I had my own fun with the writing. I think there's a sense of humor in the book. Hopefully you guys picked up on that. But there's a lot in there that, that didn't come from her.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like the parts where you talk about, you know, her crying, who made her cry, like those types of details, I was just like shook. Amy, I was shook, you know, and I remember your first book of essays, which was a few years ago now, and it was called Tales from the Background, Outsider's View from Inside the Fashion Industry. And you talked about when you yourself went for an interview with Anna. And I believe the first thing she said to you was something along the lines of like, oh, you're one of the people who stalks me at the cut, basically commenting on the fact that, you know, pretty much daily, there was a story about Anna Winter, And I know you actually interviewed with Anna herself on two different occasions. So tell me a little bit about how meeting her in person, because not many people get that exchange with her, how meeting her in person sort of like informed your approach to the book. What came to mind from that experience that informed your writing?
0: When you meet with her, and this is something people said to me over and over again, when I was reporting the book, she's super fast. She's very fast. She says, sit in that chair. She wastes no time. She doesn't want someone to walk into her office and think, oh my God, there's a couch over there and there's three chairs here and I don't know where to sit. She says, sit in that chair. It's the most comfortable. I think that's about what she said to me the last time I was in her office. And if you get 15 minutes with her, that's considered a really good amount of time. Andre Leontalli, I spoke to him at length for the book before he died, and he said, Meetings, they're over in minutes with Anna. You come in and you often don't even sit down. You stand, you say what you need to say. She gives you an answer and you leave, and that's it. She's a very, very efficient woman. I do recall in my first job interview with her, which I described in Tales from the Back row, that she looked at my shoes and then looked her way at my outfit, which people who I interviewed for Anna, the biography, described as the look, which is where she does just that. You, you stand before her and she looks at your shoes and she sort of works her way up to see what you're wearing. Oh my God. The once over. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The look is, is her once over fashion yeah. assessment. Had been for many years. Yeah. Wow that's the intimidating stuff, I think.
1: I'm curious if you learned anything new. Like you had an impression of her all of these years ago, and then you did extensive research and talks. What did you discover that kind of like surprised you by the end of this process?
0: Oh, there were so many things that were surprising to me about her. For instance, the way that she plans the Met Gala, Uh, Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, who was the lead Met Gala planner on Anna's staff for more than 10 years? Used the word militant to describe her on the night of the party because she wants everything to be exactly the way that she wants it to be. For instance, when Kim Kardashian attended the Met Gala wearing that skin tight latex theory Moogler dress with kind of the jewels looking like they were dripping off of it, her hair looked wet. Iconic. During the dinner, So the celebrities walk the red carpet and then they enter the museum. They look at the Costume Institute exhibit, which they're raising money for, and then they have a dinner. During dinner, people sit together at tables. They eat. It's a dinner, right? Like a wedding. Kim Kardashian was standing. Anna said to a member of her staff, why is she standing? Like, why isn't she sitting down? And a member of her staff said, well, she can't sit in that dress. (laughs) So this is, like, this is just, the level of detail that she is thinking about, she's also she thinks in advance very hard about where everybody is sitting, who they're sitting next to, what they will be seeing when they're sitting in their seat. She's concerned with the food that is served. Uh, in the past, she had banned garlic, chives, and onions from being in any of the food because she didn't want it to smell and she didn't want people's breath to smell. Mm-hmm. This is the level of detail that that she considers when preparing each Met Gala. Now, I have a question for you, because I think,
1: you know, just getting to this idea of Anna Wintour and and power, it goes beyond, obviously, as you say, like just picking a photo shoot and what this person's going to wear on the cover and they can't wear black and all that stuff. It's like she has her roots are so embedded in the New York fashion scene, whether it's like sort of mentoring designers before their collection goes out for Fashion Week, of course, that what is it, one night out and the Met Gala and all of those things. But now the world has changed, right? So there's been this question, Anna Wintour, in the sort of woke age, if you will, the new age and how long this sort of reign will last. And I'm curious, you know, from your point of view, like that to me is like, how has she survived this new era, I think, is the biggest question versus just, you know, timing out in terms of what's in fashion um, and people's points of view. So I'm curious your your take on that and even where Vogue is at, because that's been kind of a question. And of course, there's like the death of print, which is happening. What is your take on
0: on all of this and where it's all going? I think she's very good at existing in this corporate environment and making her bosses happy. And Vogue, at the end of the day, this is mm-hmm. something many people, again, you know, I interviewed 250 people. So many of them said Vogue is a business. And she has had business success running Vogue. It has to make money. She is seen as someone who has had success doing that. The second thing that she's really good at, I think, is managing creative people and existing in the extremely creative community that is that is the fashion industry And executives and designers seek her advice often. They call her if they're looking for, say, a lead accessories designer. Tori Birch told me that she will reach out to Anna if she's trying to fill a position like that. And then Anna will work with her team to come up with a list of names and send it over to Tori Birch. So those are really her strengths. And regarding diversity, Mm -hmm. she was late to embrace diversity as something that she uh, stood for and that Vogue stood for. She was late to that. And she is someone who around the summer of 2020, following the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, many, many people around the world experienced a personal awakening regarding racism. And Anna wrote a note to her staff that was leaked to the press in which she indicated that she had experienced that awakening. However, I think that you can argue that as a woman who is the editor-in-chief of Vogue, who has that unique position of power in fashion and in media, has a unique responsibility to be more attuned to that issue than the average person.
2: There was definitely some parts in the book where I was reading it back, and it wasn't that long ago. And some of the things that were purported that she said to her staff, it just made you cringe reading them. Like, you know, talking about East Asian women of like having a moment, almost like it was a trend, you know, and it's just it just seems so out of touch. And certainly like in today's discourse, it is. And, you know, only having I think you'd said it was like five or six black people on the cover of Vogue in the entire you know, since 1892 when it started and the whole Oprah of it all. And it actually sold the most copies kind of ever. Um, but, you know, she did make Oprah lose 20 pounds famously for the cover, you know. So there's definitely, definitely, um, I think she, like you said, has the responsibility to go even further now with that mission of inclusion.
0: Absolutely. And André Talley did praise some of her recent work when we Mm -hmm. spoke. He praised her Lizzo cover. He praised her Kamala cover, which proved to be incredibly controversial. And Andre wasn't the only person who said, you know, Lizzo on the cover. That never would have happened in the 2000s, for instance. In the 90s, for instance.
2: Yeah. Couldn't agree Mm -hmm. more.
1: (laughs) And now a quick pause from one of our new friends at GladSkin. All right. So if you're a regular listener, you probably know by now that my main skin concern, it's always facial redness, especially around my nose. It's the reason I can never just use a skin tint and go, unfortunately. I'm just like my dad, really. He has rosacea, whereas I've been told by facialists that I have pre-rosacea. So I'm sort of on the cusp. That's why I'm always on the lookout for calming skincare that helps to reduce that inflammation. So I'm really excited to try a new line that I just heard about. It's called GladSkin. And GladSkin's products have been helping people in Europe for years, but they just now landed in the US. So it's kind of like a little secret. The whole line, it's all about non-prescription solutions that work differently than plant-based or drug-based products you may have tried before because GladSkin targets the underlying nature of healthy skin, which of course is your skin's microbiome. Gladskin Skin developed a revolutionary protein. It's called Microbalance, and it helps to restore the natural balance of the good and bad bacteria that live on the skin. So they've got a line for acne, rosacea, and eczema, and I just ordered their redness relief range for rosacea-prone skin. It's all about rebalancing the skin's microbiome as it moisturizes without any harsh ingredients, of course, to help reduce the appearance of facial redness. So if your team microbiome Right now, GladSkin is offering our listeners 15% off plus free shipping on your first order at GladSkin.com slash beauty. That's GladSkin.com slash beauty for 15% off plus free shipping. And there's a 60-day guarantee. GladSkin.com slash beauty. We'll link to this offer in our show notes and on our website. And now back to the show. Now tell us about, I believe this came up in your recent newsletter, Condé Nast Unionizing. And I'm curious, you know, I'm curious what your take is on this because, you know, as we came up in the magazine world in Toronto, you know, there was definitely that thing where it was like that attitude and I can only imagine it would be amplified in New York. It was like a million girls would kill to have your job, you know, and so you had that you were like, okay, I guess I'll just, you know, and then of course interning, which was like not probably very ethical either. But I'm curious, like, can publishers even afford to unionize with what's happening these days? Like InStyle just shuttered, you know? And I wonder just like the state of media in New York. I've been out of it for like five years now. Like, are they making enough money now where unionization is even like a real
0: possibility? Well, I don't think that legacy media companies really have a choice with the unions because if they vote to unionize, then at some point they will have to recognize them. Another thing that I hear, I have a lot of friends who have worked in media or continue to work in media. But one of the things that I hear them talk about a lot is they have a lot of work to do. And they're responsible for so many digital platforms, in some cases, increasingly rare cases, a print product as well. And it's not like their wages are going up while the volume of their work is going up. And many of them are living in expensive cities like New York City. It's This is not a cheap place to live. And they can see that the salaries that I talk about in Anna, the biography that people like Andre Leontali used to have, granted, he was an unusual influencer in the In the fashion world because he had so much influence and he was so well respected by so many very important people. But he told me he was making, I believe it was $350,000. And then around the time of the recession, his salary was was cut a little bit, I think to around $300,000. But people today are not often getting to that salary. He also told me that he was upset when his salary was cut because he was aware of fashion editors making upwards of $700,000. And that's a figure that I was able to confirm in reporting the book. This is what senior editors at Vogue used to make. I don't think that that's what they make today. I think that the editorial workforce is aware that their ceiling has been lowered. And that's why they're feeling like they need to unionize.
2: Our last question for you, Amy. So what else do people sort of need to wake up to that's not being talked about enough? maybe people can take this as foreshadowing of what you might be talking about in an upcoming newsletter. What's, what's the next hot take going to be?
0: The shifting power dynamics in fashion media are a constant fascination to me. Uh, This obviously involves Anna Wintour very deeply and what her in that position for this extraordinarily long period of time really means and what is going to happen when she's gone. And I kind of hinted all of that in the book. But that's something that I, I'm always fascinated to talk about. And I find so many people are are fascinated to talk about as well. I wonder who could be her successor. Yeah, that's a great... Who could fill those shoes? That is such a great question. And people... I think a lot of people are very enthusiastic for what Edward Edenfull is doing at British Vogue. He's created some extraordinarily memorable covers and images and had an approach to diversity and inclusion that is really excellent, that has really resonated with so many people. However, what I will say is that, you know, I and I talk in the book about how over the years, there were rumors about Anna Wintour leaving or getting fired and speculation about people who might succeed her, such as Karine Reutfeld, who used to be the editor-in-chief of uh, what was then called Vogue Paris. Mm -hmm. but that obviously never happened. So I'm just saying that the rumor mill has been very wrong about Anna many times in the past, as I discuss in the book, and it could very well be wrong again.
2: Yeah. And she's not slowing down. Like I just watched Questlove um, on the heels of his Oscar win for his documentary. He was on Jimmy Fallon and he was talking about how he DJed an after party at the Oscars, which was Beyonce and Jay Z's after party. And he's DJing and he looks up and in the middle of sort of like the dancing circle, Anna Wintour is jumping up and down.
0: And yes. It's oh, like I'm this glad woman. you brought that up because Anna <laughs> loves to dance. <laughs> Anna loves to dance like, like inside like the she neck She's in house, her she
2: loves early 70s. Like, She's 72 no years idea. old.
0: That's, mm-hmm. But she loves to dance. <laughs> Yes, this is the fun loving side of her that like you don't get in the Devil Wears Prada that I tried to bring out in in Anna, the biography that she's a human being and she enjoys doing human things like cutting a rug on the dance floor at the Met Gala or an Oscars after party.
1: Well, we'll believe it when we see it on TikTok, Amy.
0: (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really can't thank you guys enough.